0: listening to the Crossridge Women podcast. The following is teaching audio from our fall 2023 study in the book of Nehemiah. For more about us and to access our resources, you can find us at crossridge.church forward wstudy. Did you hear anything that someone else said that you want to share? Anything about what stuck out you know what? Sometimes it's easier to share what you heard someone else say that was you thought, well, oh, that was good, than share your own thing. So, um, What stuck out to you about Chapter 12? The end of Chapter 12, I should say. Thanksgiving and dedication and the singing. Yes, Thanksgiving, dedication, singing. Those were the repeti- repeated words, weren't they? Thanksgiving, singing, joy. Yeah, definitely. That is the emotional tone of it. It's re- they, they just seem so earnest too. Like they're, they're like, "Yeah, we're gonna do it." Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They they de- as they dedicate the wall and set it apart, they're sort of like, "Yeah, setting apart themselves too." Like this time, yeah, we're gonna do it. Good. Anything else that you think is important for us to take away? I think this verse, um, verse 43, is, is is really interesting. On that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and children also celebrated, and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. And this morning we were just talking about, you know, the, the worship and the thanksgiving and the praise of God, this joy... Um, You know, we, one of the girls just talked about, she was really struck by that. Like, when we gather together as, as the church, uh, you know, as, as believers, you know, do other people, is it something that, like, there's seen, like, great joy and thanksgiving, and even just that, as a witness to, to people, that, that we have joy and peace and thanksgiving. Um, She felt quite, um actually challenged by that to say, what is it we're doing when we gather? You know, do other people look and say, look at those people. They're so happy. They have so much peace. They're always grateful and, and thanking and thankful. So yeah, it's good. Okay. Anyone want to share a title for that? I think we probably just said it right. The wall's dedicated joy. Thanksgiving. How about the next section? Um, what happens there? 13, 1 to. I have 13, 1 to 9. I would change it if I was going to change it now. I would change it to 13, 1 to 3, and then 4 to 14. Um, at the very beginning of 13, 1 to 3, I just want to make sure that we're all understanding what's happening there. Um... I'll read it. At, at that time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. You know what? I'm going to say one more thing. I don't think I've ever said this. Uh, what does the ESV say? What are the first three words of chapter 13 in the ESV? On that day? On that day. Yeah. So um, there's a couple places actually right here in these chapters that, or these verses here that I do think the ESV maybe doesn't do the best job. And one of those is when it says on that day. Because you get the feeling that all this is happening, and it says it a few times. You've probably read read that phrase a few times through Nehemiah. And actually, what the Hebrew says is more like how the CSB renders it at that time. Um, so, like on the day that that this on this day that happened, it doesn't have to be the same day as what's happening previously or right before it, but just at that time. Um, so, I think that's just important because sometimes. I mean, the, the chronology of Nehemiah is tough anyway. Sometimes you're like, you know, and even this, we're going to all of a sudden hear, wait a minute, while all of this was happening, Nehemiah wasn't even here, right? So, mm-hmm. so it is not always just this straightforward, this day, then the next day, then the next day. Okay. At that time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. The command was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Because they did not meet the Israelites with food and water. Instead, they hired Balaam against them to curse them. But our God turned the curse into a blessing. When they had heard the law, they separated all those of mixed descent from Israel. So um, it's important that we sort of see what's happening here. This isn't the first time that the people have separated themselves. Remember last time we said they separated themselves from the foreigners because they were going to repent um, according to, you know, their not keeping the covenant. And, and the, the Israel, the people of Israel, the actual Jewish people by heritage, they had a different responsibility towards that covenant that the foreigners had not had. they like, the people that came in that saw... God, Yahweh is the one true God. I am going to join these people. I am going to turn away from the gods of my own family's nations and I am going to follow Yahweh. Um, They did not have this heritage or this responsibility of forefathers, you know, not keeping the covenant because they hadn't been under the covenant, right? So now we see this again, this idea of separating themselves um, and at the end, I, I really don't like how the, the ESV and the, the CSB render this phrase, actually. They separated all those of mixed descent from Israel. And it sort of sounds like if you're not a pure Jewish person, you can't enter the assembly of God. And actually, what the the... The original language, the Hebrew, says, "Is they separated the mixed multitude from Israel?" And the mixed multitude is a phrase we see all throughout the Old Testament, speaking about a lot of these people that were sort of like on the fringes, following around um, the Israelites. Like there were people who we talked about this last time, who and and just a couple minutes ago, who. F- you know, turned away from their Ammonite or their Moabite gods to follow Yahweh. They were part of the assembly of God. They were now part of God's people. Um, But there was also sort of this little riffraff that was sort of on the outskirts throughout the whole Old Testament who did a little bit of, you know, like, oh, yeah, like I'm going to hang out here, but also I'm not going to give up um, you know the the foreign gods of my ancestors or the the idolatry, and sort of not fully committed but sort of there um, and so that is what Nehemiah is talking about, and that is what 's happening here with the original audience when they are separating those of mixed descent they are saying you know we we are not going to allow these people to be part of the assembly because they are actually not fully devoted and giving their allegiance to Yahweh. They're still worshiping other gods and they're they're messing around. And what we see in the next section, 4 to 14, is Tobiah is a really good example of that, right? He's hanging out there. In fact, now he's living in a room in the temple. We know that he is an Ammonite governor. We know that he opposes God's people. That's what we read about in chapter 2 and chapter 4 and yet he's sort of like around stirring up trouble and definitely not um you know helping the the his the other um, israelite people to be faithful to god he's actually turning them away yeah um, okay, so that's what happens in thirteen one to 3, this idea of separating the mixed multitude and really pure a purification and a set-apartness. Maybe, like, the wall is dedicated in 12, but then the people dedicate themselves anew and say, we are the people who are fully devoted to um, the worship of Yahweh. Okay, um, so then we have this interesting little um, section about Tobiah, um, there is on page, we used a chart on page 66 to sort of figure out everything that is going on um, from chap, or from verse 10 on, but uh, what was the big deal with Tobiah? What did you guys think? What's, I guess maybe we just sort of said it, eh? He is an Ammonite and... Not only, like, someone has cleared out the storerooms of the temple to let him live there, um, but it's the the priest, Eliashib, has done this, and we see that the reason why he has these ties to Tobiah is because of intermarriage that we've talked about a few times already um, through this. Yeah. So then from 10 on, and actually that... Four to ten is a little bit a part of it. But on page 66, we used this chart to see what did Nehemiah see when he came back. So here he, (coughs) excuse me, his time was up. Remember in the very beginning when he he told the king, like, I'm going to go for a time. And the king said, how long are you going to go? Okay, obviously the time was up. He went back. And then he took leave of King Artaxerxes and he came back to see what was going on. He sees three things. He responds three times, both with words and then actions, and then in every single um, at the end of every section, he has this prayer. So there's a lot of parallelism in these sections. Um, but the first thing what, well, the first thing that he found, what did Nehemiah find? In, what did he see in 10 to 14? Yeah, there are portions. Yeah, that's right. What question does Nehemiah ask? It sort of sums up the problem. Why is the house of God forsaken? Yeah, why is the house of God forsaken? Or that's the same word, neglected. Um, Did that look familiar to you? Yeah, what was that from? They signed the covenant. That's right. They signed the covenant. And in um, chapter 10, verse 39... They say, I think it's verse 39, the end of 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. And actually in the Hebrew, it's the exact same words that, that Nehemiah uses. Why is the house of God neglected? Yeah. Uh, what's, the, what's the second thing he sees? And and stuff on the yes. Yeah. And the, his question is What? Yes, what is this evil thing profaning the Sabbath day? Sorry, Rebecca, what are you saying? My, my mic is a mess. just, it's just, just clicking on right here. Oh, of course it is. Yeah. Um, okay, and so did that look familiar, this idea of the profaning the Sabbath? Yeah, where's that from? The same spot, the signed covenant. Yeah. And so the third thing that he sees is what? They're intermarrying. So there's the third thing of the covenant. Remember last time we looked at this and we said, here's the three issues that their covenant deals with the intermarriage, the um, honoring the Sabbath and, and taking care of the house of God. And so what they're doing there when they're taking care of the house of God is they're providing for the priests and the Levites who work there. So in that storeroom where Tobiah is now living, um, that is where the people should be bringing their portions, their contributions that would pay uh, or that would feed the Levites and the priests as they were on their shift working at the temple. And because Tobiah is there... Uh, They they are not bringing contributions anymore. No one's bringing because there's no place to put them. And then when the Levites and the priests are coming, they actually can't be. There's no food for them, so they they go home to their to their families instead. Something I learned from from this study of Nehemiah is that I think I always just assumed that the priests and the Levites like they lived in the temple like Benedictine monks or something. I, I, I think I sort of had this understanding that they were just like, that's all they did. Maybe a little bit like the um, like Catholic priests. But actually, I, I went back and I was reading in Second Chronicles, I think it might be 27, I'm not exactly sure. But when David, um, David institutes like the priesthood there at the temple, he divides the year into these months. And then each month, he splits up, between, divides between two priests. And so, if you were a priest or a Levite, you had two weeks out of the month where you were responsible to go and to work at the temple, and that you would be—you would eat and be cared for by the contributions and the portions that the people gave and sacrificed um, of, of their own, um, you know, stuff. So that. That as a Levite and a priest, you could be cared for by the people, um, and then after that, you would go back to your family, to your town. And so that's what's happening here: is that the Levites and the priests they aren't coming, they aren't coming. So what's the big problem there? If they're not coming, then worship of God is not happening, right? Um, and it and it is sort of because this Tobiah is living in this in the temple. And they've given this, this space to, um, to, to Tobiah. So he asked that question, what, why is the house of God neglected? And I think if you were, you were there um, and you sort of pressed those, those people who are the original audience, they would say, well, the house of, of God is neglected because we need things that Tobiah has. And if we let him live in in the temple, he's going to provide for us. Um, Because he was wealthy. He was an Ammonite governor, we read before. He had much means and resources. And it seems like the people had decided that what they need, that Tobiah can give them, was more important than the... Worship and their relationship with God as a people of worship, um, and I think probably Nehemiah then would answer them and say, "No, the Lord has what you need. You need what the Lord has to provide for you um, through worship, and um, and you need to trust Him to provide for you instead of looking to Tobiah and <clears throat> trying to give him this this spot." Uh, I think we can make a, a good. We can sort of jump through this interpretation to application now, understanding that, you know, the New Testament says that our body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? In the New Covenant, we don't go to a temple or this certain place. We don't just go to the clover or any other church building to be with God. But now the the believers as a body and individually we are uh, the temple of the holy spirit he lives in us and in us corporately and i think it's really important for us to take some time and think you know if your body is now the temple of the holy spirit are there sort of these virtual ammonites that we have allowed to take up residence in the chamber of our heart right we can let um these enemies of God or things of the flesh, things that are not in line with the heart of God, to sort of take up room in our heart. And when you do that, those sorts of things, whether that be, uh, it could be a relationship, it could be anxiety, it could be fear, it, it could be um, just loves of other things above God, then that is going to edge out um, the worship of God, it's going to displace things like prayer and observing Sabbath and, um, you know, spending time in study of God's word, confession and repentance. And those things are going to be squeezed out the longer we let these, you know, virtual Ammonites or whatever you want, these Tobias to dwell in our, in our heart. Um, yeah, and so Nehemiah comes and he sort of cleans house, right? He, he sends to buy out, and he restores everything so that worship can be can be restored. Yeah. Um, looking at the 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 next one in our chart, we said that the Sabbath was profaned. You know, the Sabbath maybe to some of us not such a big deal to us now, New Covenant people. Um, they were commanded to keep the Sabbath, and you know they're they're buying and selling. Here and and Nehemiah Nehemiah sets all those things to right, but when you when you put yourself in the the mindset of of the original, like the Jewish reader, those Israelites, those people who are um, buying and selling and trading on the Sabbath and and profaning the Sabbath day, why anybody want to contribute? Like, why is this such a big deal? What what does the Sabbath represent for the people? It definitely sets them apart, obviously, because they're not working, and as we see, the the nations around them are. So, why is this such a big deal that they would have it part of their covenant? Because it showed that um, they are trusting God for um, their provision, and so they can rest yes. uh, from doing it themselves. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, uh, I think it's really important for us to it you know, it's sort of seems easy, but to think about that, like that to observe Sabbath is an expression of trust in God. Um, and so if Sabbath is not something that you think about, um, now, I, I would just maybe ask you to think about why like why is this is that not part of your rhythm i think that it is still it's i would say it's it's not required but actually this active enacting of like yeah putting my trust in god in this way where i do not work or i do not do this or i you know i stop and i worship god i delight in him i remember the story i gather with the people of god I observe Sabbath as a way to say my trust is in God and not in, you know, whatever work I could do or, you know, providing for myself or that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that we can, we can learn something from that too. Yeah. How about the final thing, this idea of intermarriage? What does Nehemiah suggest is the biggest problem with the Intermarriage. Yes, yes. Word. Yeah, language. It's about their forgetting their language. Why is it so important that they know the language and that their children and their grandchildren know the language? Their so history is told from generation to, yeah. generation to generation. Yeah, yeah. And it's also their sacred text, right? The scriptures are written in Hebrew. So once... Um, once the people do not know the language, when it is read out by the priests, they are losing that. And we, we said this throughout um, our study that um, the the law of God or the scriptures, um, that that is central to their identity as a people. That is what made them a people, was this God gave them the law and God revealed himself through through the law, the books of Moses. So, yeah, that's a loss of identity in a very deep way um, That that is coming through that intermarriage. Good. Yeah. Okay, uh, one last thing I just wanted us to do before we, just 10 minutes, I think, here, before we go into um, our small groups. I said at the very beginning of the study, we always think about what are the themes, like what are the main themes that a book wants to, the author of a book wants to bring across. And there's three... um, There we go. There's three themes I wanted us to think about tonight um, that sort of come through strong. And what I wanted us to do is just a little bit of of a practice. What we're trying to learn how to do... Is um, when we study this way is we we're trying to observe and see what the text says, and then we're trying to interpret, which means we're going to understand how did those people who originally heard it or or witnessed what was happening, how did they understand this, and then in application, then move forward to okay, what does this mean to us? I'm not sure why my I... if this is driving you crazy, I'll turn it off because it looks like it's is it flashing a lot. Not sure why it's doing that. Um, so I just wanted to think about these three topics of prayer, work, um, the work of God's people, and then faithfulness. And I know this is—it's hard to reach back. So you can sort of thumb through your book, or if you mark your Bible, it's an easy way to see it too. Um, but is it really? The cord is not. I'm just being, oh, well, maybe it's in there, yeah. Um, so I just thought if we could take a minute to think about what did we observe in Nehemiah about prayer? Like what did we see happen? Oh, it's still going. I can use this whiteboard if you want. I don't have to write it down. What are some key things that you think you learned about prayer from this book? So you fasted and prayed when you heard about Jerusalem. Yeah, so there's fasting and praying. That was sort of a, and do you remember how long that lasted? Yeah, three or four months. So that's prolonged prayer. Nehemiah was a man of prolonged prayer or intercession, for sure. What else did you observe about prayer? Confession was an important yes. part of it. Confession is a very important part of prayer, for sure. Good. He yeah, often reminded God, not like God forgot, but he would like repeat God's promises back to him. Yeah, yeah. We, we talked about that a lot, didn't we, that he, he prayed God's word back to him yeah his promises or his word yeah good Yeah, imprecatory prayers were part, were part of that, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. And he also prayed that God would remember him for good, especially like in that last chapter. He's praying a lot that, that God would show him steadfast love and that he wouldn't hold the sins of the people against him. Um, you know, all those things, like what Amy said, the imprecatory praying and this whole remember me, it just shows us um, like what the original... Audience, so the people who were around Nehemiah, or the original reader, the people who were reading this when it was first written down, about like forty years after Nehemiah had written it down, um, I think it hints to them that Nehemiah believed in judgment, that that Nehemiah knew that God was judge and that He would actually um, judge the sin of the the opposers or his enemies and that actually god would judge him as a leader too um i find this interesting because i've said this before but this is the last this is the last book chronologically in the old testament so this book is sort of like i mean there's going to be 400 years after this until the gospels and jesus comes but we're we're entering into this, like, or sort of transitioning into this idea of God's law for the people and then God's law being put on individual hearts. Um, So I think there's something interesting there about, yeah, like, like Nehemiah could see that the people, there was judgment, but also he was sort of um, desiring something where, like, God could overlook him or remember him for good in spite of the failure of people. It's sort of maybe hinting at that. I don't know. Okay, any, if, so these things that we've seen, this is good. This is just what we observed about prayer and then maybe what the people would have observed or learned as they read this in their time. Um. What kind of application can we get? What can we learn? How do you take what you learn about prayer and Nehemiah um, into your daily life? Anybody have any thoughts about that? I just sort of noticed a trend with him where there was a problem. He'd fix it. And then there was a prayer. Mm-hmm. And it was usually like God, like in my mind, think he's thinking... God, I did what I thought you'd want me to do. Like, yeah. I'm trying to follow you more. Please remember me. Or yeah. judge these people yes. because they're not doing it. Yeah. it. It was like these little popcorn prayers at the end of Definitely. the problem. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, he he didn't just do these big, long fasting prayers. He also, there was there was a lot of sort of like really quick prayers, one-liners or something, you know, that he'd throw out before he would do something or in response to, okay, he does what he needs to do to restore the people, and then he goes back to God, yeah, yeah. Anything else we can learn about prayer? Yes, yeah. I I just wrote down, pray more. And that sounds sort of silly, but like, I, I just, you know, it, it actually does sound ridiculous when I say it out loud, but I, I've been very convicted about the importance of prayer um, and the necessity of it in the believer's life. And actually, I would tell you that Nehemiah has changed my prayer life, and particularly... Um, when it comes to my, my teenagers, I have been sort of praying in a way that I... Th- like, instead of... I think normally, often for my kids, I'm just praying on the fly, like these quick little one-liners, like, oh, my goodness, Lord, help them, you know. Um, or help me. But I have really given myself to more, like, intercessory prayer in the mornings for my kids. And I think th- I think that... That change has come just watching Nehemiah's devotion to God through his prayer, his prayer life. Yeah. I also think not only did he pray that way, but also when the king asked him, he quit pray. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Before he responded. Yes. Yeah. I think sometimes we forget that. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, it's so good. Um, I think that is really important for this. This original reader, if you think about it, I just said that this book is the end chronologically of the Old Testament. So these people who are reading it are like maybe 40 years, maybe 100 years into the silence of the intertestamental period. After this book is written for 400 years, there is no prophet. There is no thus saith the Lord. The whole, like all of Israel goes into this silence. And it's almost like God is not speaking. And so, when I was thinking about like, what does this this original reader who is in the middle of that like God is not talking. There is no prophet. We are not hearing from God anymore. Um, what do they see um, from Nehemiah's prayer? And I think it is. I think it's just to to keep like to pray despite silence. Like, they, they might be experiencing silence. They're not hearing the word of God. And yet, um, to, to pray. And that God actually, and maybe this is where we're tra- you see a bit of a transition away from, like, the corporate to the individual. Because, um, like God, Nehemiah said so many times, God moved his heart or the people's hearts, you know, were moved to work or something. And it's like maybe in those, that time of silence, I wonder if there were people who were reading this book that thought, like, hey, my heart is moving. Like, God moved my heart. He is still faithfully, sovereignly administering his plan, even though it feels like he's left us alone. We are waiting for this king. When is this king coming? We, re- we rebuilt the wall. We rebuilt the temple. Come on. And there's no king. Um, sitting on the throne in jerusalem just a reminder to continue to seek god and to pray even in the silence i think yeah okay how about work let's talk about work the work of god's people or the work of the kingdom what did you see what do we see in nehemiah about kingdom work or working for god or whatever we want to say Yeah, corporate. The importance of of unity around it, right? It's a corporate effort. It requires unity of the people, of the body, yeah. Good. It might be opposed. It might be opposed, yeah. Opposition is going to come. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. yeah this um, his work well and everything yeah that's interesting because we we when we looked at that um, passage we saw that like Nehemiah worked for the king, artaxerxes, but he also worked for the king, and this idea that our like our secular work or whatever our work is that can also be for kingdom work, yeah, that's great, yeah, why do you think this this Person who's reading this originally, the original reader, what might be important for them to understand about the work of, of God? Yeah. Everyone is needed. Yes. Yeah, everyone everyone is needed. Yes. We can't be stiff necked like the tacoites. Yeah. And think that we're above it, yeah. Or maybe even that there is work to be done. Yeah, yeah. Especially if, like, if it seems like God. Required. Yeah, that's right. You know, and for them, like we're saying, if they're in the intertestamental period, they might think like, "Is God even working?" Right? What does the book of Nehemiah, what might the book of Nehemiah speak to that thought? Like, is God even working? that God is faithful to complete his plan, to accomplish the work, right? Remember that we saw, like, God accomplish the work. We see that a few times in the book of Nehemiah. The people need to work, but also it is God that accomplishes it, and that he is faithful to do that. Mm-hmm. I think it hit me as that it needed to be organized. Yeah. they out at night, and he figured it out. Yeah. There's so much order in this. And, you know, my kids' school, they they sort of had, I don't know, these, I can't even remember what they're called, through lines that were like messages that you see through the whole Bible. And I've really been thinking a lot. One of them um, is or being an order discoverer because God is a God of order. And boy, did I ever see that in the book of Nehemiah, that God is a God of order and there's order to the work. There is order to worship that is beautiful. There is order to the way we lead people and are led. And um, yeah, but there is beauty found in order. I think that goes right back to creation. Really, that's a that's a Genesis principle for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Um, any application for us about? Work, the work of the kingdom. <clears throat> I just thought sometimes it just needs a leader to yeah. start it off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they were able to accomplish the whole building of the law. Of the yeah, PTJ. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because he started it. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes you just have to get started. True, that's true. time to just say somebody else will do it yeah for sure yeah especially for Nehemiah I mean he had an important job in the kingdom certainly there were other people that could have done it but God moved his heart so he was the one Yeah. I think Nehemiah also would often say like God has done this thing yeah, yeah. To just acknowledge that the work he was doing was like, God yeah actually God, God is actually doing the work yeah um, and I think the end of Nehemiah speaks to the fact that we can't do it without him. That's the right. Needed. That's right. On their own, it all fell apart. It all fell apart. They couldn't even they couldn't even keep the covenant. Yeah, so right. Like the application for us: we try and do it on our own without the Holy Spirit us or guidance, That's right. or even directing us in the right work to do. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, for sure. No, I think it's really important. Like I said to you. Um, a little bit tongue in cheek at the beginning of the the study that people like to take Nehemiah and say this, this is a study about being a good leader. Do you remember that on the first night? And then I said, and all you have to do is read verse thirteen twenty five or whatever it is to, you know, and then start saying, really, is he that good of a leader? You know, he comes back and he he sees that the people have broken all everything that they covenanted to do. They've broken that, and what does he do? He's like beating them and pulling out their hair. And I say that a little bit tongue in cheek because I do want to say, okay, if he's a good leader, like you got to read that verse too. Is that being a good leader? You know, this is what we like to do—just make make the, the the Bible like these moral lessons that we can just, if we just do this, then we're good. Um, and, and actually, it is important for me to say, like, what he's doing is enacting the covenant curses. He's not flying off the handle, which is actually, if we read it, we think, well, he's having a temper tantrum and he's flying off the handle, right? Because they didn't do what he wanted. Yeah, hey, I have kids. I I get it. Totally. Um, but truly what he is doing is he's enacting covenant curses remember we said that when two parties made a covenant they would um, have the sacrifice they would cut an animal in half and they would walk between the pieces and in doing that this was the covenant custom saying um, if I break this covenant with you let this happen to me right? It's calling down a covenant curse on yourself. That's a way to bind yourself. This was common practice in ancient Near East. This was not just Israel. This was all the ancient Near Eastern people. This is how they made relationship with each other and how they partnered with other human beings was through covenant. So what he's doing there, it seems a little like he's pulling their hair and poking their eyes out and beating them or whatever, but he's actually probably um, enacting the covenant curses, which if you think about it, What an awful job. Right? (laughs) Who wants to be the leader then? And you know what? It doesn't look like that now. But it does speak to the fact that, you know, there are times when we're leading that we actually have to do the hard thing and call out sin in other people or call people back to, um, yeah, call people back to covenant and, and to relationship. I think... If there is something we can learn, a little bit like what Rachel said about leadership from the book of Nehemiah, is that no matter how great of a leader we are, we're still sinners, leading sinners, right? And no matter how great of a leader we have, that leader is a sinner leading sinners. So even great leaders have sheep who wander, and even great leaders wander. So what this does, I think, what this teaches us is that um, we well, first of all, we need a new covenant, <laughs> right? The people needed Jesus to come, we need this like they needed the new covenant, they need the Holy Spirit residing inside um, of us. we needed Jesus to do the work to accomplish the work of keeping covenant for on our behalf and um, and then we have a desperate need for god 's hand to be on us wherever we 're leading. You know, if we're just leading in relationships or our family at home or in our work or in our ministry or or whatever it is in, in, you know, whatever we're doing, we need the hand of God to guide us because outside of the Holy Spirit, we will be a flawed leader. Yeah, yeah for sure. That's good. Um, one other thing I would say about work, and then let's just, well, we've been talking a little bit about faithfulness already, but... Um, I think it's really important for us to think about this because we've been talking a lot about like working, like the work of the people and like doing this kingdom work. And something that I think it's important to say is that God doesn't need us to work, right? Sometimes we get caught up in this idea of kingdom work and, you know, I've talked to some people. It was like, well, God doesn't care about me. It's just like, as long as his work is done, you know, s- souls are saved. And, you know, that's the most important thing. But um, I think we misunderstand God when we say, like, God is using us to do his work because he doesn't need us. God does not need us. He is the self existent God. He, um, that is his name, I am, says that he possesses everything in himself to have anything done. He, he does not have need of any other being, even humans. And if this is true about God, then why does he enter into the human-divine relationship? Why does he want to partner with people? Why does he come to Adam and Eve if he doesn't need them to um, rule in the garden, to represent him um, and to have a relationship with him? If he doesn't need them, Why would he enter into relationship with people in the first place? What do you think? Why would he do it? And the answer is love. He loves people. He loves the people he has made. So he wants to partner with them. Because what this shows us is that the work is actually not about what we're doing for God. It's not that something out there needs to be accomplished, but that um, this work that God has for his people, this kingdom work is actually something that transforms the worker and in doing this kingdom work, it's not like we are accomplishing something it's that God is accomplishing something in us. so I was I was thinking about this so you know when you serve, serving transforms the heart of the server and generosity when you are generous. Generosity transforms the heart of the generous. And even going back to Sabbath, you know, enacting Sabbath or practicing Sabbath changes the heart of the Sabbath earth. Um, and being faithful, like, in into any of this work, it actually has a transforming work on us. So instead of looking at our work through, like, oh, there's all this to be done, and God needs to use me to do it, and I got to do it, and we have to think, like, God is transforming me as I partner with him and do this kingdom work. And the other thing that this, like, automatically says then is that this is why, like, Working alongside God for His kingdom work is not always easy. That's why it's tough, because He is actually doing something in us in the process, and sometimes that's like we need to give up selfishness, or you know we need to step out of our comfort zone and do something different, or or, you know revealing idols that we have that He wants us to let go of in this work. Um, It's not always glamorous at all (laughs) it can um and sometimes it actually looks painful right if you're having to um put to death your pride in order to serve god which you usually are um you know but that is that is for our good and our flourishing that the work of god is not just for god's kingdom to flourish it's actually for the human heart to flourish yeah in the ways and the character of god okay one last little thing and then we're going to go to our groups but um, what about faithfulness? What did you learn about faithfulness? Maybe we've already said it all. God is faithful, even though we're not. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, God is faithful, but we are not. Yeah. You know, this sounds like such a like just a Sunday school answer to say that. But I think if we can really lay hold of this, it can transform, like, how we live, and how we look at our circumstances, and how we look forward, in, um, in our circumstances. But the the reason this book was written, Nehemiah, to these people who are living in the, you know, in this intertestamental period of silence, is that they are to see God's faithfulness in the past. And that should inspire them to be faithful in the present. And we said actually that was one of the reasons Revelation was written too. So it's, it, it has that in common. And I think a lot of books we could say that. But there is something about looking back and focusing on the faithfulness of God that is to inspire um, our faithfulness in the present. And it's why... I would say again, and we talked about this this morning, that the gathering of God's people on on Sunday mornings um as we gather as the bot is really important, and part of that is that we are are gathering to to look back at how God has been faithful and to to call that out for sure um, i i one thing one last thing that I will say about that is. Um, I was reading this, um, it's neuroscience, neurotheology, actually, about like brain science and how people, but how it um, impacts discipleship, so how people change and are um, shaped by the word, actually. And um, it was talking about how this, often when we are looking, maybe in our prayer, or when we're just talking to God about things, we're looking often future-oriented, like, what is going to happen? Like, I, this, I need this to happen. Like, you're, you're praying about things in the future. Um, but this, this writer was saying that actually, and that's future-oriented, but worship-oriented often looks back. And so um, we look back at what God has done in the past, and um, that when we are looking forward too much, when we're oriented too much about, like, what needs to happen, it, it brings anxiety. But looking back on what God has done and making that the sort of the focus of, of our prayer, and that actually breeds gratitude. And we talked about this. It should bring about thanksgiving. And what these neurotheologians are seeing in like, this brain activity is that gratitude and anxiety don't coexist in the brain. They can't coexist. So grateful people, people who practice gratitude, are less likely um, to suffer from anxiety. Uh, So I think this this idea of, like, remember that God is faithful and we are not is is a Sunday school answer that we can take to the bank, right? That we can really hold on to. And uh, that we can look and say, how are we looking back at the faithfulness of God? We are... um, actually entering a really a really good season coming out of Nehemiah and then entering into Advent and some of you are maybe coming to our um, the, the family Advent experience on Friday and Saturday some of you will come to the gathering on Sunday or maybe you're doing your own Advent things in your family but I do think it's interesting that we now enter into this this time where the church remembers that the people of God waited in darkness for the light of Jesus to come. And you know, these people who were reading this book of Nehemiah, they were actually waiting in these 400 years of silence, and it probably felt really dark for Jesus to come. Um, and for them to be able to hold on to what God has done in the past and to look back and to see God's faithfulness, even when you're sitting in silence and darkness, um, I just think that like this is the intent of Advent that when you get to Christmas, just to see that the, the birth of Jesus, the sweetness and the beauty and the joy um, that should be heard miles away as we gather at Christmas, right because we have um, remembered what it 's like to wait through this like difficulty of the Old covenant and the darkness and the silence so um, I I just pray that that your experience of, of Advent and Christmas this year could could actually be sweeter and more beautiful and more profound because you have been through this um, book of Nehemiah and you've seen what it means to like look back and focus on the faithfulness of God over time um, and how that, Like knowing that he has been faithful is what inspires hope for the future, that he will continue to be faithful to us. Yeah, We're going to end tonight in our groups. So um, for the last 20 minutes here, it's quarter after eight. um, But I'm just going to send you um, to your tables to wrap up with page 70. And there's four questions there, but I have to be honest. When we were going around this morning, we, answered, we were answering the first one, which was sort of answering all the other ones too. So you can, maybe you did this, maybe you spent some time there, maybe you didn't even do it. Um, so you can just talk about this together if there's one that stands out to you more. But basically, let's just re- review and reflect with each other. What, what meaningful learning do you take away from this entire book? Um, and how have, have you been shaped specifically and this is where we invite you into an environment of of vulnerability and then what does this mean for you know your engagement in the church even how does how does this how are you going to live this out communally too and um after we we share for a bit then i would just invite you to um you know whenever you're ready maybe to just pray to close your time together in prayer to pray for each other as we go forward that you would be able to to be putting into practice the things that God has put on your heart and the way that he shaped your thinking and feeling, um, that that would also shape your behavior. All right? So that's page 70. Thank you so much for, for um, joining with us. I'll just let you go to that uh, in your table groups. Well, friends, thanks for studying along. And remember, for any of the resources you heard in the teaching podcast, check out crossridge.church forward slash wstudy. We'll see you again soon.